Welcome to the Twimmel AI Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Charrington. All right, everyone, I am on the line with Theo Karianis. Theo is an assistant professor at the Brain Research Institute of the University of Zurich. Theo, welcome to This Week in Machine Learning and AI. Thank you very much for having me. Absolutely, absolutely. Let's get started by having you share a little bit about your background. How did you come to work at the intersection of brain science and machine learning? Yes, so um, I would uh, I would say that I haven't had sort of the most uh, direct path in in this sort of uh, field. Uh, so I started off uh, actually uh, uh, studying pharmacy uh, of all things. Uh, so I had sort of my bachelor's degree in, in pharmaceutical sciences and pharmacy, uh, and then I was very very much interested in sort of my final years in getting into. Uh, brain science and understanding actually uh, brain physiology and pathology. Um, after that, so I, I decided to uh, to pursue a career in uh, neuroscience research, so brain science, through which I've had sort of a decently sort of long trajectory. Uh, and after I would say establishing uh, my lab uh, here at the University of Zurich about three years ago, or so um, I came to um, appreciate and. Uh, came more into sort of contact with the methods uh, that were actually uh, um, flooding, in fact, uh, every almost field of of science and also neuroscience uh, that had to do with deep learning. So that was sort of my first kind of contact with with deep learning was after I I joined uh, the Brain Research Institute and I started working on my own uh, kind of research projects um, after being a postdoctoral fellow. So... um, I can elaborate more if you want on on this or... Well, why don't you tell us a little bit about your research focus? Yeah, okay. So uh, what uh, I have been working on, and actually I'm I'm very much uh, interested in in the lab as well, uh, we're very much uh, focused on understanding how uh, the brain develops. So um, our primary sort of focus is, is... utilizing uh, animal models, uh, mammalian animal models, uh, more specifically genetically tractable animal model, uh, the mouse, uh, and utilizing that in order to understand how the circuits in the brain get formed during development, especially postnatal development, so after birth, and how these circuits are modified by experience uh, to allow us to to really process uh, information from our environment uh, in an uh, ever-increasing sort of uh, uh, um, complex and specific manner. So I would say that this is kind of the umbrella uh, field that we, we were working uh, towards understanding. So basically, uh, one of the sort of the, the more specific aspects of, 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 of our work uh, is aimed at um, understanding how the cortex uh, gets built, so which is this outer surface of the brain, uh, which is uh, kind of supposed to be the most uh, complex and evolutionary newer part of, of the nervous system. Uh, and uh, to understand that, we focus on specific sort of sensory regions in the cortex uh, of the mouse in, in order to understand how they process information as the animal grows. 
Okay. And so does the cortex have, uh, how are the different uh, sensory regions in the cortex organized? So there's a, 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 there's a, some sort of somatotopy, if you want, in a way, in the sense that they are separated uh, in space. So there's, for example, regions that are devoted to processing visual information, other regions that are um, devoted to processing somatosensory information, so touch events and others for uh, other sensory modalities that we have, such as hearing uh, or uh, smelling. Uh, so there's there's sort of, a, of course, a segregation of these areas, uh, which at some point, of course, further down the information processing kind of converge and come together uh, into uh, a common sort of conscious, if you want, event uh, that that can lead to a behavioral output. Is your research focused on understanding how the kind of connections and pathways are made or... Do you see that the neurons kind of physically differentiate so that there are multiple types that kind of interact with one another to produce uh, memory and behavior in these things? We basically uh, focus uh, quite a bit on understanding a population of, of cells, neurons in the brain, which are uh, called um, inhibitory cells, uh, or uh, they have sort of used alternative names and maybe more sort of correct is gabaritic cells. Uh, that take their name from the uh, molecule they use to communicate with one another. So we uh, basically focus a lot on understanding how this uh, second most populous uh, um, um, neuronal sort of group in the cortex uh, gets uh, developed, so develops and integrates into the sort of uh, circuit to um, start parsing out the information that the circuit receives. So um, I would say that, you know, we, the lab is, is sort of focused at multiple levels of analysis, um, one of which is now going to this, uh, a bit more to this sort of brain-wide uh, level, uh, where um, things need to sort of be uh, quantified uh, at, uh, at a sort of uh, more complete, if you want, uh, sort of level. So we try to understand a little bit how different areas sort of develop, how uh, inhibitory cells, these cells that inhibit signals and regulate how information flows uh, are uh, positioned in different areas, how they start uh, function uh, during development uh, and what uh, that may do for um, signal uh, propagation. Uh, so this is kind of something that we've been focusing on. Of course, there's multiple different types of cells, and the jury is still out as to uh, how many. But our work is sort of uh, a bit focused more on these on these cells. And so how does how is deep learning come into play in uh, your research in this area? The way we kind of came about uh, uh, um, or turned our attention to deep learning. Uh, is through uh, a couple of projects that we had in mind uh, where we, in fact, wanted to, to uh, address uh, what I was saying earlier, which has to do with a bit more sort of comprehensive understanding of how these populations are, let's say, generated, how they populate different areas, and how they uh, may even sort of uh, cease to exist by uh, a phenomenon which is called cell death. Uh, and so uh, in order to be able to achieve that, uh, one needs to uh, create or have the tools at hand that uh, allow them to 
be able to um, perform an experiment or have so some data at hand, which have to do with actually, let's say, uh, distribution of cells, let's say, uh, based on a specific uh, marker, uh, something that marks the cells that one is interested in our case, let's say inhibitory cells, uh, in the whole brain, right? Um, and that way you have sort of, let's say, a section, a tissue that allows you to sort of look at that uh, and take a picture of it. Now, the key question here is how do you analyze that data? And how do you analyze it across different developmental stages? Uh, and this is actually how we came about uh, wanting to uh, look into these techniques uh, that are very powerful um, and are created by multiple labs across the globe uh, that would allow us to basically, um, first of all, uh, have an atlas uh, that tells us which region is which when we're looking at our tissue. And on top of that, uh, try to extract the signal which is a cellular signal, so it's a dotted sort of signal, uh, from each one of those brain areas. So this is actually, you know, the reason why we turned our attention to deep learning and machine learning methods that would allow us to basically segment, uh, uh, classify, segment different regions, and also uh, be able to uh, basically pick up, detect the cellular signal uh, uh, that is found within them. Okay, and so a little bit more about the images that you're using. Are they 3D scans or are you looking at slices and you need to relate information between slices? Can you tell us a little bit more about the images themselves? Yes, it actually sort of, we started off by doing uh, sections, so slices, so tissue sections, uh, brain sections. Uh, so where we have the whole brain, in fact, but uh, in view and we just take images. Uh, that can be also different modalities. It can be, for example, some uh, bright field images where you detect some chromophore uh, signal that has been created by a chemical reaction or by fluorescence. So by a signal which actually leads to a fluorescent uh, sort of um, protein uh, signal that you can detect in cells. We have nevertheless also applied these kinds of methods now to... Um, different uh, images from different modalities, imaging modalities, such as uh, those taken by um, a fairly new method that is used in the biological field and um, also in the neurosciences, which is called uh, clarity or brain clearing. Uh, these types of images uh, are generated by the fact that uh, what uh, is done during the processing of the brain, which is after uh, the animal has been sacrificed, is to basically get rid of the lipids uh, and make the brain be transparent, the tissue. And that way you can actually just shine light through it and detect what is evoked in terms of light uh, by means of, uh, again, the fluorescent sort of signal. Uh, that way the light is not obstructed to go through, right? So this is another sort of imaging modality that we have used uh, to apply our techniques on uh, in addition, in the paper actually that was sort of just uh, uh, published, uh, we also tried to benchmark our methods, at least uh, one of the methods we've used on some sort of MRI scans from human patients, or rather individuals, I'm sorry, uh, that are found on the web in the database. But so, uh, although we apply these techniques mainly in, in mouse uh, tissue, uh, uh, we hope that this method would also sort of start being applied in um, other types of tissues, uh, in this case, or species like humans. 
And, and so the segmentation that you're trying to do with your method, it's, is it fair to say is what I would, what one might call like a macro level segmentation, like these large regions of the brain, as opposed to clusters of cells within individual brain regions? Yes. So the initial part was to basically be able to, uh, you're correct, yes, segment uh, a few different brain regions, uh, such as, for example, the cortex, this outer surface that we care about. Uh, but the next level of, of analysis that we are actually aiming at and we have already implemented parts of have to do with being able to at least uh, use these deep learning methods to be able to detect uh, all the cells. So in a way, create uh, b- uh, you know bounding boxes around them and actually classify them and say with a specific sort of uh, you know score uh, that these are in fact neurons. And you mentioned something about seeing or or segmenting connections or like signals in these images. Did I interpret that correctly? Are you able to through the imaging techniques, look at actual communication of neurons? Um, so we have not actually been sort of uh, uh, um, dealing with connections per se in the sense that, you know, these are usually smaller elements and uh, quite complex in nature, depending on how you look at them, uh, that we haven't really kind of dived into yet. Uh, mm-hmm. One of the things we have sort of done a little bit of is look at some really fine grain structures which are found on cells, which are the sites where connections happen, uh, and try to sort of, in fact, look at maybe how these change a little bit. Uh, these are called spines for excitatory cells for these uh, other population of neurons. But in terms of actually looking at uh, you know, uh, the elements of two, let's say, cells or two neurons connecting we haven't sort of uh, uh, been looking at that too much. Mm-hmm. What we have done is utilize these methods in combination, though, with uh, other genetic and viral and anatomically, basically, methods that allow us to look at which cells connect to which other cells in the brain, then performing a whole sort of brain mapping of those connections by doing this clarity method that I mentioned before, and then actually analyzing the signal using these deep learning methods. So basically analyzing the regions, uh, the uh, maybe types of cells, but also the numbers and density of cells found in those regions using these deep learning algorithms. Okay. That may have been what I heard earlier that I was trying to tease apart. When you say the cells are that are connected to one another – is that basically another way of saying cells that are in the same region, meaning the assumption is all of the cells in the cortex are connected or all the cells in the hippocampus are connected, that kind of thing? Yeah, it's it's actually sort of uh, um, not the case in the sense that, you know, so the first assumption is that, the, the, let's say, the neurons in a specific area are all connected, uh, or maybe this is kind of the... Um, the current view, which is which is not uh, the case, there's a lot of specificity actually in those uh, connections between uh, a variety of different types of cells. Mm-hmm. So that's not what you're saying. No, I am. What I am actually saying is that through uh, the use of a genetically tractable model, which is the mouse in this case, 
we and utilizing so some complex methods that we can in fact go more into uh, we are able to um, let's say have a, a type of cell that we care about understanding uh, what connects to it or revealing and by tracing those connections in the cells that connect to the, to that cell uh, not only in that area but actually across the brain uh, that allows us to get a full sort of brain-wide view, if you want, of, of what kinds of areas and also what kinds of potentially cells uh, uh, actually connect with, with uh, the, the, let's say, the cells of interest in another given area. Does that make sense? Uh, it does. Let's definitely go a little bit deeper into that. But before we do, you've mentioned a couple of times the uh, genetically trackable uh, mouse What's the significance of the genetic trackability to your research and what you're describing? Uh, so it's for us, it's actually very important, and it open up opens up sort of uh, uh, the door to to a number of sort of uh, uh, approaches and questions that are not uh, as easily addressable in in different kinds of uh, species, which uh, you cannot sort of let's say genetically modify or manipulate. So. To give you an example, uh, by modifying the genome of, of, of a mouse, uh, you can um, label uh, specific uh, populations and even types of cells, uh, maybe in specific areas of the brain. Of course, it's not always as clear cut. Uh, we can discuss why that is, but it allows us to basically be able to label these cells, track them, across uh, different ages, for example, and also manipulate them. And by manipulation, I mean that you can, for example, remove a, a gene of interest, uh, such as, uh, let's say, a disease-relevant gene that has been uh, implicated in some sort of a neurodevelopmental disorder, uh, where we know that, that um, uh, its expression or its sort of function is reduced, uh, you can basically remove that uh, uh, gene in specific populations and areas and time uh, to understand what what it does and how it affects uh, specific circuits. So um, it, it is very powerful for us to to be able to sort of really uh, uh, be able to track and also manipulate uh, specific populations of cells. When you say label, you're talking about like inserting protein sequences that you can easily identify. Yes, that you can. Kind of thing or something else? Uh, yes, you can do that. Um, you can basically exactly insert, let's say, uh, something which uh, uh, was not present and is not present in the mouse, but which has been, in fact, shown after multiple sort of uh, control experiments that doesn't have any uh, 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 negative effect on the cell. So this is like, uh, let's uh, say, a small scissors, if you want, uh, protein, that acts as a scissors, and then you can combine that with sort of, let's say, a receptive end, right? So you can, uh, let's say, have uh, the uh, points where these scissors can work. You can add them in a specific sort of uh, genes uh, in the genome and hence sort of cut them out. Or you can add something on top of it, again, external, uh, which then you can cut out uh, and actually uh, you can cut out one part and let it then fluoresce and let it sort of uh, die, you know, uh, die in the sense of like um, color the cells. So it's it's actually sort of, uh, there's so many now very sort of interesting tools that, that have been developed 
which, which, by the way, there's also now even cooler tools that have been developed, which allows uh, allow us to now uh, utilize methods that uh, uh, and species that were not as easily sort of uh, uh, accessible before. One of those is this uh, CRISPR-Cas uh, method that that mm-hmm. has been very popular in biology. Okay, so with these tools in place, now can you talk a little bit more about this process of kind of mapping the connections from one cell around the brain? Yes. So let me sort of uh, yeah take a step back. So what, one of the things that, that – so the way we've done it, I will try to explain the way we, we've done it. Um, so we have, let's say, been utilizing some um, um, – genetically modified animals or mice that, uh, as I said, express these scissors uh, in specific uh, cell populations that we care to study. Uh, specific, uh, let's say, uh, type, that, that a specific interneuron type or inhibitory type in the brain and the cortex. Uh, by um, having these scissors cut out um, a stop signal if you want, uh, they allow something else to come online. And that something else that comes online, like a set of proteins, uh, are in fact then expressed uh, or presented in the cell types that we care to study. Uh, one of those things that is expressed is actually a, a receptor, so, so something which uh, can go to the membrane of the cell, the outer sort of part of the cell, and that has uh, specific things that it binds to. So um, this is a a protein that is not found in mice. So it's actually found in birds. Uh, And uh, hence we know that uh, then it should be specific for these cell types. Now what we do is we at the same time utilize genetically modified viruses. So in the neurosciences, viruses have been used uh, uh, for quite some time now in order to be able to, for example, express certain things, let's say, again, a a colorful thing, that once you put it in a specific area, then you can actually uh, uh, have this virus be taken up by the cells, and then you actually see the cells and all their processes uh, labeled. Therefore, you can follow them in different areas and different brain regions. Uh, Now, this has actually been uh, even more now um, modified and even more sort of uh, tools have been created to now be able to label specific populations of cells, such as the ones I was describing. So by putting a modified rabies virus in this case, uh, the rabies virus, we can discuss what it is, but it's a different kind of, it's a specific type of virus, you're able to infect the cells that you want and because the virus now is red, uh, right, because you have expressed a, a dye in there, a colorful dye, uh, it can actually label the cells that you care to label, and it can also label the cells that connect to that cell. And so um, I hope sort of I explained it simply enough, but not simplified, not to I didn't simplify uh, sort of too much, or it wasn't sort of too complex, but basically by utilizing different sets of tools, which have to do with the mouse lines and also the uh, uh, different viruses again, we're able to, in fact, uh, look at connections uh, on specific uh, cell types. That is super fascinating. And now I've kind of <laughs> pushed you down into the biology here, which is very, very interesting. With this particular problem of the the connections, is this a place that you're applying uh, deep learning as well? 
Yeah, so um so I'm far, really glad you said yes. <laughs> yes, yes. Um <laughs> yeah. Um what we have sort of been applying deep learning methods for in these cases are to be able to um again uh to look at, for example, the distribution of uh of the connections, right? So uh let's say you um want to assess a brain area uh, A and what connects to uh, cell type A. And so you utilize the methods I mentioned, and then you want to understand because you almost go with an unbiased approach, right? So you say, okay, where do these cells receive information from? Uh, from which areas and which cell type? So in order to do that, again, in a brain-wide manner, you need to put in place methods that uh, don't force you to actually uh, uh, do typical stereology that you start counting and extrapolating or in fact, you know, make you count every single cell and try to eyeball the region that these cells sit in. So we try to utilize these deep learning methods to first of all, identify brain regions uh, in a whole brain sort of imaging set, as I said, with clarity and light sheet microscopy. And then once we have identified the region and segmented, let's say the region, then we actually use a, a different algorithm to actually detect uh, uh, all the cells in that region. And so can you talk about the specifics of the deep learning that you've used to accomplish these tasks? Yes. So uh, in this case, uh, I would say that we're kind of like the uh, end user here and and uh, the um, on the application side. So uh, the kinds of uh, networks we're utilizing are actually being currently uh, developed by, uh, so outside the lab, and they're being published by a number of labs, and in this case, uh, by, for example, Facebook or Google. And we basically took inspiration from the uh, 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 excellent results that they have, in fact, seen uh, in uh, um, uh, life, basically, you know, images uh, of uh, humans or cars or any sort of uh, basically external sort of uh, scene uh, that allows us to basically, again, uh, segment and call an object, uh, an object of a specific type and also count cells. So the two methods that we have utilized, actually adapted, I would say, for our methods uh, are two networks which are called um, FastRCNN and MaskRCNN. Uh, and these sort of were developed by um, the mask RCN specifically, which we utilized in the published work, was basically developed by uh, Facebook AI research. Got it. And did you evaluate uh, a broad uh, array of different methods or algorithms or uh, start there and it seemed to work well, so you moved on? Yeah, so our primary purpose obviously was not to kind of do like a, an end-to-end -end comparison with all the methods that are out there, uh, because we're also not primarily a, a lab that develops these kinds of techniques or uh, puts a significant effort in, in uh, basically uh, into this field. So I would say that we basically looked out there to see what's available, what's the most common sort of way that people do this kind of, uh, in this case, image registration to an atlas, um, and uh, that we benchmarked our method against, which uh, these are not deep learning algorithms, but of course there's other sort of other efforts that have been also um, uh, done uh, by, uh, by other labs, of course, uh, that, that were sort of generating methods uh, to do these kinds of things, but 
uh, I would say these efforts have focused on mainly uh, human brain um, images. What did you learn as you were applying these methods like MaskRCNN to this problem? Any particular you know, interesting challenge or observations in, in terms of applying it to the types of uh, images and objects that you were looking for? Um, yeah, I mean, one of the sort of things that we, uh, uh, I at least uh, came to appreciate is actually, of course, the power of these methods. Uh, when you sort of uh, have a, a, at least a large enough sort of a training data set to be able then to uh, look at the, uh, you know, um, testing data set and actually perform the job. But in terms of our sort of uh, method, I would say, uh, or our sort of uh, questions, I would say that, um, first of all, we didn't try to do this for uh, all the brain regions. We actually chose a few brain regions to kind of showcase the ability of the method to uh, perform well and uh, the usability of the method. But I would say that, uh, of course, um, structures change in the brain uh, when you move to different sort of, um, uh, let's say, uh, parts of the axis, right? So uh, you may have the same brain region, uh, let's say the cortex or the hippocampus, uh, but as you go and take uh, images uh, of that region at different, uh, basically, levels, right? Uh, closer, let's say, to the middle midline or farther away from it, uh, then the the network is having a challenge in basically being able to detect, of course, more complex types of uh, of of uh, imaging brain regions, right? And so, uh, I would say that the network has performed uh, well enough for us to actually make use of it. But there is a uh, there's quite some uh, way that we have to go in order to uh, make sure that it's uh, uh, even more accurate and that it's actually able to uh, segment sort of these harder type of regions, uh, which are maybe not as uh, sort of easy, uh, and also expand it in other brain areas and even more specific parts of a given brain area. So we were I would say we're we're at the very beginning of this of these efforts. And what were some of the alternative or traditional techniques that you were benchmarking these methods against? So two of the sort of most commonly used methods uh, are, are Elastics and NDREG. So uh, these are basically non-deep learning algorithms where, uh, you know, they take uh, minimum type of error um, approaches and utilize uh, linear or non-linear sort of uh, warping of of the uh, atlases uh, onto uh, images that you have collected. Uh, so these are the two sort of most commonly used, and we kind of uh, try to utilize those ones uh, to just initially at least. And then, uh, then we try to take it one step further and utilize um, or compare against some other methods, uh, which were basically um, uh, out there published uh, on sort of some human in fact, issue, uh, uh, again, that was on the web, wasn't generated by us. So yeah, I would I would say that this is, you know, it is not, of course, uh, 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 clear whether uh, at the moment this is the best uh, uh, deep learning algorithm to be able to uh, uh, segment different brain regions because, of course, uh, this field is moving very fast and, uh, you know, uh, it is not uh, unlikely that uh, other algorithms are in the making, or in fact, uh, were just, let's say, published that that could even sort of surpass 
this uh, algorithm we've used. Uh, were there any particular challenges that you faced in the kind of the data management and preparation side of this project? Um, yes, I would say that, of course, with any of these methods, uh, again, uh, as a sort of novice in the field, uh, I've come to appreciate the uh, amount of effort that needs to be put in terms of generating the ground truth data set. And so um, uh, that has been sort of, uh, of course, a bit of a bottleneck for us, uh, being able to really kind of uh, create uh, this data uh, that we use to train the network. Yeah, I would say I would say this has been sort of the biggest uh, challenge for us, if you want, uh, in sort of doing this. Mm -hmm. uh, because we were, in fact, lucky enough um, or um, maybe sort of uh, inspired enough, I would say, uh, to also um, have access or gain access to, to a big data set, which is available to us and actually uh, the whole neuroscience or brain science community uh, provided by the Allen uh, Institute based in Seattle. Uh, so um, this, has been, this has been an institute that has been uh, uh, generating a lot of data uh, at different levels of analysis, uh, including a lot of sort of images of uh, um, mouse brains uh, for different types of proteins and markers and so on and so forth that mark different areas, different sort of cell types and so on and so forth. So this was also sort of a great resource for us to have and so we tried to utilize it, um, you know, abundantly in order to sort of get to our goal. And, and so what's next for you and your lab in terms of applications of machine learning and deep learning? Uh, so what's next for the lab is actually uh, um, one of the things that uh, we would like to try to do is to expand on, on these approaches uh, to... Um, both anatomical type of data, uh, but also potentially sort of uh, some functional data, meaning some um, uh, activity type of data uh, that uh, we collect and others on um, uh, live uh, animals uh, awake or freely behaving or uh, basically that have undergone some sort of like uh, external stimulus presentation. So I would say that uh, for now, uh, we're aiming to uh, expand uh, some of these methods uh, to potentially include uh, other areas, but uh, even more so to include uh, hopefully different uh, sub-regions within regions, right? Uh, where we then need to create even sort of uh, different types of ground truth, of course, uh, that will give us uh, quite a bit more specificity uh, in terms of understanding, actually, this uh, at the brain-wide level, or at least cortical-wide level. So I would say that that um, um, that would be sort of one direction that we're going towards and uh, trying to also sort of utilize maybe these methods to uh, look at um, connectivity that you asked me before a bit more directly, if possible, uh, as well as try to implement these uh, methods uh, in, uh, in functional data, as I said, that are collected by um, methods that look at activity of neurons in vivo, so in the live sort of animal. Uh, well, Theo, thanks so much for taking the time to share a bit of what you're working on. Uh, it, it has been a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you very much for the opportunity. Awesome. Thank you. 
All right, everyone, that's our show for today. To learn more about today's guest or the topics mentioned in this interview, visit twimmelai.com. Of course, if you like what you hear on the podcast, please subscribe, rate, and review the show on your favorite podcatcher. Thanks so much for listening and catch you next time.